Chapter Nineteen of Erewhon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Neil Donnelly. Erewhon by Samuel Butler. Chapter Nineteen: The World of the Unborn. The Erewhonians say that we are drawn through life backwards, or again that we go onwards into the future as into a dark corridor. Time walks beside us, and flings back shudders as we advance, but the light thus given often dazzles us, and deepens the darkness which is in front. We can see but little at a time, and heed that little far less than our apprehension of what we shall see next, ever peering curiously through the glare of the present into the gloom of the future. We presage the leading lines of that which is before us by faintly reflected lights from dull mirrors that are behind and stumble on as we may till the trap-door opens beneath us, and we are gone. They say at other times that the future and the past are as a panorama upon two rollers. That which is on the roller of the future unwraps itself on to the roller of the past. We cannot hasten it, and we may not stay it. We must see all that is unfolded to us, whether it be good or ill, and what we have seen once we may see again no more. It is ever unwinding and being wound. We catch it in transition for a moment and call it present. Our flustered senses gather what impression they can, and we guess at what is coming by the tenor of that which we have seen. The same hand has painted the whole picture, and the incidents vary little. Rivers, woods, plains, mountains, towns and peoples, love, sorrow, and death, yet the interest never flags and we look hopefully for some good fortune, or fearfully lest our own faces be shown us as figuring in something terrible. When the scene is past, we think we know it, though there is so much to see, and so little time to see it, that our conceit of knowledge as regards the past is for the most part poorly founded. Neither do we care about it greatly, save in so far as it may affect the future, wherein our interest mainly lies. The Erewhonians say it was by chance only that the earth and stars and all the heavenly worlds began to roll from east to west, and not from west to east, and in like manner they say it is by chance that man is drawn through life with his face to the past instead of to the future. For the future is there as much as the past, only that we may not see it. Is it not in the loins of the past, and must not the past alter before the future can do so? Sometimes again they say that there was a race of men tried upon the earth once who knew the future better than the past, but that they died in a twelvemonth from the misery which their knowledge caused them, and if any were to be born too prescient now, he would be culled out by natural selection before he had time to transmit so peace-destroying a faculty to his descendants. Strange fate for man! He must perish if he get that, which he must perish if he strive not after. If he strive not after it, he is no better than the brutes. If he gets it, he is more miserable than the devils. Having waded through many chapters like the above, I came at last to the unborn themselves, and found that they were held to be souls, pure and simple, having no actual bodies, but living in a sort of gaseous yet more or less anthropomorphic existence, like that of a ghost. They have thus neither flesh nor blood nor warmth. Nevertheless, they are supposed to have local habitations and cities wherein they dwell, 
though these are as unsubstantial as their inhabitants. They are even thought to eat and drink some thin ambrosial sustenance, and generally to be capable of doing whatever mankind can do, only after a visionary ghostly fashion, as in a dream. On the other hand, as long as they remain where they are, they never die, the only form of death in the unborn world being the leaving of it for our own. They are believed to be extremely numerous, far more so than mankind. They arrive from unknown planets, full-grown, in large batches at a time, but they can only leave the unborn world by taking the steps necessary for their arrival here, which is, in fact, by suicide. They ought to be an exceedingly happy people, for they have no extremes of good or ill-fortune, never marrying, but living in a state much like that fabled by the poets as the primitive condition of mankind. In spite of this, however, they are incessantly complaining. They know that we in this world have bodies, and indeed they know everything else about us, for they move among us with us whoever they will, and can read our thoughts as well as survey our actions at pleasure. One would think that this should be enough for them, and most of them are indeed alive to the desperate risk which they will run by indulging themselves in that body with sensible warm emotion which they so much desire. Nevertheless, there are some to whom the ennui of a disembodied existence is so intolerable that they will venture anything for a change. So they resolve to quit. The conditions which they must accept are so uncertain that none but the most foolish of the unborn will consent to them. And it is from these, and these only, that our own ranks are recruited. When they have finally made up their minds to leave, they must go before the magistrate of the nearest town and sign an affidavit of their desire to quit their then existence. On their having done this, the magistrate reads them the conditions which they must accept, and which are so long that I can only extract some of the principal points, which are mainly the following. First, they must take a potion which will destroy their memory and sense of identity. They must go into the world helpless and without a will of their own, they must draw lots for their dispositions before they go, and take them, such as they are, for better or worse. Neither are they to be allowed any choice in the matter of the body which they so much desire. They are simply allotted by chance, and without appeal, to two people whom it is their business to find and pester until they adopt them. Who these are to be, whether rich or poor, kind or unkind, healthy or diseased, there is no knowing. They have, in fact, to entrust themselves for many years to the care of those for whose good constitution and good sense they have no sort of guarantee. It is curious to read the lectures which the wiser heads give to those who are meditating a change. They talk with them as we talk with a spendthrift, and with about as much success. To be born, they say, is a felony. It is a capital crime, for which sentence may be executed at any moment after the commission of the offense. You may perhaps happen to live for some seventy or eighty years, but what is that compared with the eternity you now enjoy? And even though the sentence were commuted, and you were allowed to live on forever, you would in time become so terribly weary of life that execution would be the greatest mercy to you. Consider the infinite risk. To be born of wicked parents and trained to vice, to be born of silly parents and trained to unrealities, of parents who regard you as a sort of chattel or property belonging more to them than to yourself, 
Again, you may draw utterly unsympathetic parents who will never be able to understand you, and who will do their best to thwart you, as a hen when she has hatched a duckling, and then call you ungrateful because you do not love them. Or again, you may draw parents who look upon you as a thing to be cowed while it is still young, lest it should give them trouble hereafter by having wishes and feelings of its own. In later life, when you have been finally allowed to pass muster as a full member of the world, you will yourself become liable to the pesterings of the unborn, and a very happy life you may be led in consequence. For we solicit so strongly that a few only, nor these the best, can refuse us, and yet not to refute is much the same as going into partnership with half a dozen different people about whom one can know absolutely nothing beforehand, not even whether one is going into partnership with men or women, nor with how many of either. Delude not yourself with thinking that you will be wiser than your parents. You may be an age in advance of those whom you have pestered, but unless you are one of the great ones, you will still be an age behind those who will in their turn pester you. Imagine what it must be to have an unborn quartered upon you, who is of an entirely different temperament and disposition to your own, nay, half a dozen such, who will not love you, though you have stinted yourself in a thousand ways to provide for their comfort and well-being, who will forget all your self-sacrifice, and of whom you may never be sure that they are not bearing a grudge against you for errors of judgment into which you may have fallen, though you had hoped that such had been long since atoned for. Ingratitude such as this is not uncommon, yet fancy what it must be to bear. It is hard upon the duckling to have been hatched by a hen, but is it not also hard upon the hen to have hatched the duckling? Consider again, we pray you, not for our sake, but for your own. Your initial character you must draw by lot, but whatever it is, it can only come to a tolerably successful development after long training. Remember that over that training you will have no control. It is possible, and even probable, that whatever you may get in after-life which is of real pleasure and service to you, will have to be won in spite of, rather than by the help of, those whom you are now about to pester, and that you will only win your freedom after years of a painful struggle, in which it will be hard to say whether you have suffered most injury or inflicted it. Remember also that if you go into the world you will have free will, that you will be obliged to have it, that there is no escaping it, that you will be fettered to it during your whole life, and must on every occasion do that which on the whole seems best to you at any given time, no matter whether you are right or wrong in choosing it. Your mind will be a balance for considerations, and your actions will go with the heavier scale. How it shall fall will depend upon the kind of scales which you may have drawn at birth, and if they have not been outrageously tampered with in childhood, and if the combinations into which you enter are average ones, you may come off well, but there are too many ifs in this, and with the failure of any one of them your misery is assured. Reflect on this, and remember that should the ill come upon you, you will have yourself to thank, for it is your own choice to be born, and there is no compulsion in the matter. Not that we deny the existence of pleasures among mankind. There is a certain show of sundry phases of contentment which may even amount to a very considerable happiness. But mark how they are distributed over man's life, belonging all the keenest of them to the fore part, 
and few indeed to the after. Can there be any pleasure worth purchasing with the miseries of a decrepit age? If you are good, strong, and handsome, you have a fine fortune indeed at twenty, but how much of it will be left at sixty? For you must live on your capital. There is no investing your powers so that you may get a small annuity of life forever. You must eat up your principal bit by bit, and be tortured by seeing it grow continually smaller and smaller, even though you happen to escape being rudely robbed of it by crime or casualty. Remember, too, that there never yet was a man of forty who would not come back into the world of the unborn if he could do so with decency and honor. Being in the world, he will, as a general rule, stay till he is forced to go. But do you think he would consent to be born again, and relive his life if he had the offer of doing so? Do not think it. If he could so alter the past as that he should never have come into being at all, do you not think that he would do it very gladly? What was it that one of their own poets meant, if it was not this, when he cried out upon the day in which he was born, and the night in which it was said there is a man-child conceived? For now, he says, I should have lain still and been quiet, I should have slept. Then had I been at rest with kings and counsellors of the earth, which built desolate places for themselves, or with princes that had gold, who filled their houses with silver, or as an hidden untimely birth, I had not been as infants which never saw light. There the wicked cease from troubling, and the weary are at rest. Be very sure that the guilt of being born carries this punishment at all times to all men. But how can they ask for pity, or complain of any mischief that may befall them, having entered open-eyed into the snare? One word more, and we have done. If any faint remembrance, as of a dream, flit in some puzzled moment across your brain, and you shall feel that the potion which is to be given you shall not have done its work, and the memory of this existence which you are leaving endeavors vainly to return, we say in such a moment, when you clutch at the dream but it eludes your grasp, and you watch it as Orpheus watched Eurydice gliding back again into the twilight kingdom, fly, fly, if you can remember the advice, to the haven of your present and immediate duty, taking shelter incessantly in the work which you have in hand. This much you may perhaps recall, and this, if you will imprint it deeply upon your every faculty, will be most likely to bring you safely and honorably home through the trials that are before you. This is the fashion in which they reason with those who would be for leaving them, but it is seldom that they do much good, for none but the unquiet and unreasonable ever think of being born, and those who are foolish enough to think of it are generally foolish enough to do it. Finding, therefore, that they can do no more, the friends follow weeping to the courthouse of the chief magistrate, where the one who wishes to be born declares solemnly and openly that he accepts the conditions attached to his decisions. On this he is presented with a potion, which immediately destroys his memory and sense of identity, and dissipates the thin gaseous tenement which he has inhabited. He becomes a bare vital principle, not to be perceived by human senses, nor to be by any chemical test appreciated. He has but one instinct, which is that he is to go to such and such a place, where he will find two persons whom he is to importune till they consent to undertake him. But whether he is to find these persons among the race of Chaubach or the Aronians themselves, 
is not for him to choose. End of chapter 19